Well, hello. Welcome to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast uh, which seeks to plug the gaps between culture, Christianity, the church, apologetics, mission, and a host of other things. Uh, my name is Aaron Edwards, and I'm joined by evangelistic extraordinaires, Andy Bannister and Michael Lotz. Uh, so how are you guys doing today? Doing well. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Exactly. Good. Michael, you're looking quite suntanned, actually. He's As- always looking suntanned. <laughs> Yeah, well, I just, I like doing life outside. I get very claustrophobic. I I really don't like this time of year. For those listening, you know, in six months' time, this time of year is currently October. And uh, I feel claustrophobic. You try living where I do, because in Scotland, I tell you, the evenings are drawing in. There was almost a frost this morning, not quite. But that, you know, Mm. when the dew is that kind of heavy, you're like, man, this is... Mm. It won't be long. Think, yeah. It's like thirty minutes of daylight and uh, and cold porridge. I was going to say about seasons, though. I mean, I know some people, some people say like autumn is their favourite season, but I'm just like it's the season when everything is dying. Like literally, like my garden is dying. Like everything, you know. Like how could that be your favourite season? Yeah. Spring is clearly a much better season. I've heard a, 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 a comedian called Jim Gaffigan, and then if you guys have heard of an American, a Catholic comedian, quite a clean comic, but very, very funny. And he's talking about the same. People always, in America, they obviously go to places to witness the fall in mm. somewhere like, with beautiful colours of the leaves falling. And he's like, this is just, we're watching leaves die. Like we're just watching <laughs> mass death of leaves. Um, and that's kind of a, a weird, a weird thing. But funny enough, Michael, I don't know if you planned that. I don't know if you planned it or not, but that was possibly part of the abscesses please write in if you don't think this is the best segue we've ever had <laughs> from banter opening to topic um, our culture our, our topic is indeed um how our culture thinks about death so that was wonderfully played michael we didn't even plan that in advance mm. um so it, we, we're, we're, we're debating here it kind of leads on from our last um, episode where we've talked about risk aversion we're in a culture that doesn't like risk that wants to sort of minimize it mm. and i think um, it does lead into the fact that we we are so terrified of death um, that we just don't really know what to do with it. So as a culture, you know, you, you may have, obviously we've all experienced someone likely who's died or dying. If you're younger and you haven't had relatives die or you haven't experienced that yet, but many of you will have experienced that and will have experienced people around you, people you know, who have different kinds of attitudes to death. Um, of, of course, Christians have much to say into that and we can get onto some of that. But guys, do you think this is a problem we have in Western culture, especially in terms of what we do with death? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think I think I see I see a couple of trends going on. One is the one is the attempt to forget it exists. And so, you know, the old sort of joke about, you know, the Romans had bread and circuses. We have pizza and Netflix. Uh, so we have a culture that, you know, constantly throws a thousand and one trinkly kind of baubles at us. So you don't have to think about the big questions of life, including including death. And so everything moves so fast, particularly in this digital world. And I think that's not accidental. I think we we try and distract ourselves from from thinking about those things. And that was one of the reasons, of course, why why COVID, I think, was so hard for lots of people that for a lot of people, it made it quite difficult not to think about death. You were confronted with your own mortality. So on the one hand, we distract we distract ourselves and you know the one thing you know if you want to sort of kill any you know dinner party conversation just bring the topic of death mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. and then on the other hand at the other time i think we have this increasingly growing sort of nihilistic trend in culture but i think some you know some writers and, and poets and artists and it's often that end the creatives who who are not mm-hmm. who are who will raise the big mm-hmm. 
questions. So whether it's, you know, Damien Hurst, you know, sort of chainsawing, you know, animals in two and sticking them in formaldehyde to start a conversation about death. Mm. Or my favourite example of this is Julian Barnes, very well-regarded writer and novelist, yeah. wrote a book a few years ago about death and dying. And he's an atheist. And he called his book, it's very clever, he called it Nothing to be Afraid of. Mm-hmm. Now, you can take that title two ways. You could take it as nothing to be afraid of. We die and we're gone, we're worm food. Mm-hmm. Or you could take it as nothing is the thing to be afraid of. And he meant it as you read the book, he means the latter. And that book is an exploration mm-hmm. of all the things that follow, mm-hmm. what it means, that particularly what it means that will be forgotten. Uh, and nobody will remember us. And we will, you know, we like to think that we'll live on in the life of our, you know, sort of family and things that we don't have religious faith. And Barnes just torpedoes that idea. You will be forgotten. It, it mm. you know, you will be nothing more than not even a, not even a footnote mm. in history. And and then he just reflects in that book on, on the implications mm. of what nothingness actually means. And it's pretty horrifying. So I, th- I think you've got this sort of multiple, these two trends going on. Don't look. On the other hand, my word, it is just so, so bleak. Uh, and just so despairing and so pointless and absurd. Mm. Mm. So to some extent, though, I wonder if, I mean, Michael, you can feel free to jump in on that. I, I'm just wondering if, 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 if a secular person is listening to this show, which, of course, I know many atheists do enjoy listening, um, it, it, the, the, some would say, actually, they do reflect death in the culture. So, for example, even though we're kind of a post-religious culture in some ways, if you think about the average football team, um, Whenever an old uh, kind of ex-player, you know, I'm a Liverpool fan. We recently had uh, a famous one of Liverpool's famous great strikers, uh, so, so Roger Hunt, as he was Chris, as he was sort of uh, knighted by the Liverpool fans. I don't think it was by the Queen. Um, died, and and it's quite a common thing for that to obviously players wear black armbands. There's a big thing on the screen. It almost uh, there's a sense in which almost some football clubs commercialize that and it builds this kind of tradition. But you almost like someone dies if you're if they're important, they're added to the pantheon, aren't they? And it always gives people this sense of tradition. So it's not like they ignore it entirely, but they do something different with it, don't they? Mm. Yeah, I think, I guess one of my questions, though, is is why, and I guess my assertion would be, I think Western society struggles with death more than any other society. Mm. I think partly that is because in a secular worldview, we literally have no hope beyond death, do we? Like, if we're going to be consistent naturalists, then we just say death is the end. You know, I'm I'm just a bunch of chemicals that is currently alive, and then I won't be, and there'll be nothing of me that will remain. Um, now, even in non-Christian cultures, um, many worldviews will have some idea of something that goes beyond death, mm. and that therefore what we do in this life may not be completely wasted, or there may be continuity. Mm. Now, as a Christian, obviously, I think we have much stronger grounds for believing in life beyond death and a much more real and physical hope of life beyond death. It's not just a vague spirituality. It's a, it's a new creation. But but that said, you know, if you have nothing at all to go on, then death becomes an incredibly fearful thing. And yet somehow we can't live with that consistently. I, I was speaking at UCL a few years ago um, at a university mission week. And of course, the big thing that they all show you when you go to UCL is the uh, the, the body of Jeremy Bentham, uh, they're preserved in the entrance hall of UCL, famously an atheist. And yet, you know, here is his body, um, you know, that has to be presented and, you know, preserved in the, the entrance hall of UCL. And apparently the tradition is that when they have a board meeting of the university, they wheel him out <laughs> into the board meeting. and He has the casting vote. So if, uh, if there's ever a kind of a, a 50-50 split, and then he will vote in favour, whatever the motion is. I thought, isn't that interesting? Here is a guy 
somehow wanting to preserve some kind of sense of immortality, yes. even though his worldview had no space for it whatsoever. Yeah. But that, I think that contra- the contradiction piece fascinates me. Um, I'll just p- pick up on that, then I want to raise another idea and kind of pass the baton on. The, the other place I, I've seen the contradiction is also the whole idea, the whole idea of respect for the dead is fascinating. I don't know if you remember this story because I can't remember exactly which hospital it occurred at but I remember there was a medical there was a bit of a medical scandal a few years ago here in the UK when it turned out one of the major hospitals you know was losing a lot of infants in the baby unit but then to make it worse it turned out they were then doing medical experiments and, and sort of you know sort of autopsies and, and and stuff on the dead babies and there was a massive outcry that you were doing that without the consent of, of the parents but of course I remember thinking at the time now that's interesting on a purely naturalistic view of the world what harm has been done you know the little baby is tragically dead until the press got hold of it you know mum and dad didn't know what's going on so what does it matter you know chop the dead body up harvest bits from it throw it on the barbecue if you if you want to as i want to put it to peter singer the atheist ethicist in a debate it doesn't actually matter and you could see that even peter the absolute hardline atheist when i literally pushed it as far as why don't we just barbecue dead but dead, dead babies yeah. it's like well I, I i wouldn't be comfortable with that and i but but why if death is death is mm. is death so why respect the dead mm. and then at the same time this couples into what we talked about last week the risk averse stuff I think I'm intrigued when you don't have a, a robust theology of of mm. death and of course death does become the thing to avoid at all costs and then you become incredibly risk averse Neil Oliver who's a journalist up here up here in Scotland walk up one an archaeologist been offered all over the media used to present coast that show for the BBC you know Neil's got no religious faith. I remember seeing a, an interview with him recently where he said uh, words to the effect of, you know, if the only thing you have in a secular world, the only thing you have is your life and living, and you must, that must therefore preserve that at absolutely all costs. <laughs> Just reflecting on that does some strange things to a society uh, when preservation of life becomes the only thing uh, that is worth in investing in because there's nothing else worth hanging on to, right? Yeah, it seems like we've, we do seem to have sort of the medicalization of our culture as well has been a problem, isn't it? That we do, and this this hits Americans a lot more, but, it, you know, what happens in America does tend to migrate um, around other places in the West and then beyond the West. Um, so we do have this sort of obsession with health, don't we? I mean, it's not like every, obviously every human civilization has always wanted to survive and preserve its life. It's not like that's a bad thing. It's kind of germane to what it means to be human to some extent. Um, survival but at the same time um, it goes beyond that doesn't it because survival alone is not the entire point of what it means to be a human so our obsession with health is really a kind of exactly what you're saying a a way of of um, pushing death away as though it doesn't really exist we know it does exist we know it's going to come um, different people reflect on it in different ways um, but it it's something we want to kind of push out to the side And, and the secular kind of a worldview that dominates even if people wouldn't identify as secular on a form they are it completely imbued with with secular um, virtues and values um, in the way they think about eternity and then life and the meaning of life it does mean that there are these awkward questions aren't there about about what we what you would do with the body and things like that in the ways that kind of christian uh, tradition may may have different views on i can remember there's a you know, think about the um use of the grim image you mentioned earlier andy the um of, of, of what to do with the, uh, the death of a baby. I was thinking of that scene, and I don't know if you read Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which was made into a film at some point with 
Viggo Mortensen with Aragorn, as we, <laughs> as we said. Um, but um, but the, the book, amazingly, a really, really harrowing part that this kind of post-apocalyptic situation, what would humans do when they're at their very worst, when they're kind of foraging for survival and resources? Um, and then this is, this is people that are being sort of tracked and you can see them, uh, this person can see them kind of going on ahead of them. He's following their tracks and there's a pregnant lady um, and then a few days later, they know, they realize that the, the almost the baby was being harvested um, to be eaten. Um, and that's the kind of the depths of um, sort of depravity that humans may go to when survival is the only thing that seems to matter. So clearly there's something here which uh, which is being sort of, you know, brought out, isn't there, by some of the ways people reflect on death. I guess one of the reflections for me then is how does this impact upon us as Christians um, yeah. and the church? I know you're the host, but am I allowed to make a kind of gear you shift? You always do Aaron? this. You always jump in and say, are, are you the host? Take you take over. You take it, man. No, no I'm, I'm not taking over, but I'm just... It just it, joking. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Because, because we like to think, don't we? We like to think, you know, well, we're Christians. We've got the best reason to have hope beyond death. We've got the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. We've got solid evidence. We've got a far greater hope. It's not a kind of vague thing. It's, it's new creation. It's physical. It's, it's wonderful. And yet, I guess the, the question is, to what extent does the kind of general feeling of our culture towards death affect how we feel as Christians? Um, and I guess a couple of things on that. One um, was um, John Wyatt, um, who's a Christian um, medic and has written a really helpful um, book looking at some of the kind of medical ethical issues. saying so actually, as, as Christians, you know, that should affect maybe how we face you know, death. Um, is just preserving our life for as long as possible what we want to do or actually is, does there come a point where we say actually no I, I want to dignify death not euthanasia um he's not advocating that but in the sense of like do we just go for more and more treatments just to keep ourselves alive for as long as possible um or does there come a point where actually we want to say how, how can we help people die die well um but also I guess as we were kind of touching on in the last episode thinking about the risk involved in in mission and yeah. actually in many parts of the world there is there's great risk of death for those who are going to um, communicate the gospel um and and actually that that's okay that's okay i mean i, I was reading john 21 um, last week in my bible readings and and what really struck me is that here's peter you know he's denied christ and then he meets the risen christ he's given this three opportunities to to declare his love for christ and then off the back of that the first thing jesus says is um and this is how you're going to die, Peter. <laughs> and he, you know, it says, you know, and he, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And on the on the surface, that seems terrible, doesn't it? It's like, you know, I'm really glad that you love me. By the way, you're now going to die. Yeah. But actually, in a weird way, that was kind of encouraging, because the Lord Jesus is saying to Peter, actually, there is something worse than death, and that is to deny Christ. Mm-hmm. And actually, the encouraging thing for Peter is, you aren't going to deny me next time around. You are going to be faithful to me. And through that death, you will glorify Christ. Mm. And I think Andy and I were talking about the situation of Christians in Afghanistan. Mm. And, you know, I was finding myself thinking, how do I pray for Christians in Afghanistan? Do I pray that the Lord will keep them safe? Because uh, the reality is they're not. You know, and mm. and this seems like you know, the stories coming out already of Christians who've lost their lives there. Mm. Uh, but maybe what I should be praying is that, that through them being faithful to Christ, even to death, that they will glorify Christ, that people will come to know Christ and through that and of course actually in a sense that's the way we show the supreme worth of the gospel don't we if we say this is worth more to me than my physical life and like what greater way can we show that the gospel is true and real um doing that i I remember really coming head to 
you know, sort of head up on that when a few years ago, um, you know, a dear friend of mine who I've mentioned a couple of times in the past on this podcast, Nabil Qureshi, uh, yeah. former Muslim um, convert to, to Christ, wrote it. His testimony is amazing. He wrote a very uh, best-selling book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. When the Beal in his mid-30s was uh, diagnosed with, uh, you know, very suddenly with with with, with uh, stage four stomach cancer. You know, he'd, he'd had some, you know, sort of pain in his tummy, he'd gone to the doctor thinking it was some gastric thing and just been diagnosed about the most virulent form of cancer you can get down there. And uh, and then sort of died over the next, uh, next sort of few months or so. But one of the things that struck me is, um, you know, first he was Christians, you know, constantly asking the, the question, well, how can God allow this to happen? On the other hand, Nabil just producing these series of videos in the end from his hospital bed where he just shared the gospel and talked about faithfulness in Christ in the, in the face of death and dying, the hope that he had. And actually what was interesting was the number of people reached through Nabil as he died faithfully was incredible. And of course, on paper, you might go, well, why would God allow someone? I mean, you know, people say to me, he could have had decades of ministry. But actually, nevertheless, the way that he died glorifying Christ. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of people that led to the Lord. But I think the answer is probably a very, very great many looking at the number of those videos that were watched. So I think I think there is something in our culture, that, if not of careful as Christians, encourages us to play the same kind of sort of, you know, game of, of value judgment as the culture makes. And that's why we get caught up in all the risk averse stuff that we talked about in the previous podcast, rather than our primary question being, how can I glorify Christ and live faithfully? If not careful, the primary question just begins to be, well, how can I be, how can I be safe? How can I live as long as possible? How can I, you know, whatever. And look, there's nothing wrong with making wise choices. I mean, you know, be sensible you know don't smoke 20 cigarettes a day that's a pretty guaranteed way of shortening your life pointlessly but the flip side is you know saying well okay maybe i i won't go on that mission trip to that part of the world maybe there's a risk where there's a risk or maybe i'll you know sort of think about other things because of course the most important thing is to live as long as possible um so yeah i think there is a there is a question for how in the church we we don't go we don't be stupid but we make sure that we are calibrated on the right target mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really, really helpful. I think, you know, and linking to what you both mentioned about the last episode about risk aversion, just thinking of a, a quote from um, Alan Hirsch, actually, we can think of death, you can almost think of death metaphorically. We talked a little bit about, I mentioned um, organisations or missionary movements, which kind of die um, because they because they stop taking risks and because they're a fe- almost their fear of death. Um, means they die in, in another sense. And uh, there's this quote from Alan Hirsch, one of the a great um, missiologists, pioneer missiologist. It says, but when, but when risk averseness becomes obsessive or a core aspect of the ethos of any organization, he's referring especially to the church, it is destructive. So risk aversion is destructive, as we talked about in the last episode, in the same way, in, in the way we, we think about death. It, we can look at our life and think we're so keen to preserve it, aren't we, that that we're not living that full free life where we're kind of giving ourselves away in the same way that Christ gives himself away unto death. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, you know, you both uh, have touched upon the resurrection as well. And there's something that uh, Christians uniquely have to say that I'm, I'm always struck by um, I, I, one of the most profound things I ever heard was actually by Ravi Zacharias, a sermon jam um, by Ravi Zacharias. I know that obviously his, uh, credentials have gone uh, have plummeted of late but i still think there's amazing things that god did through um his ministry um and you know we have a whole episode where we talk about the complexities of that but it was it was a sermon jam relating to a sermon he did on the resurrection where he's quoting malcolm muggridge's um book on jesus um, i forget the subtitle of that book but malcolm muggridge a great christian journalist had written this book 
talking about um, what what would you do um, to frighten Lazarus? How could you frighten Lazarus, who'd been raised from the dead by Jesus? What are you going to say to Lazarus? I'm going to kill you. If you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. You can't frighten Lazarus. And it was, it was, Malcolm Muggeridge is actually referring to um, a kind of play that was written called Lazarus Laughed, which is all about the absurdity of Lazarus's laughter when the Romans tried to kill him and tried to say, yeah, what would it, imagining what would it have been like for Lazarus for the rest of his life, knowing that Jesus had actually raised him from the dead and then he's living in life as a Christian. I mean, we don't know much about what happened to Lazarus, but it's just this, this kind of play was written as a kind of um, sense of the absurdity of his laughter, which would almost become a, uh, um, uh, almost viral in catching on to others. So they would look at his laughter and continue laughing and, and going, goodness, yeah, what, what an absurdity. How, how do you scare someone who knows that death is not the end? There's nothing else you can do to someone once they know that. And in a sense, that's what kind of Christians are called to live for, isn't it? And I think what's really helpful to be able to say is it's not simply that death is not the end, but actually, as C.S. Lewis famously talks about, these are just the shadowlands. Mm. Um, and I think for most people, their view is that even if there is something beyond death, that's less real than what we're in right now. Mm. It's a nice compensation. Mm. Um, for me, if I can ruin the end of two books in, in one illustration... <laughs> Uh, I've often <laughs> compared the ending of Harry Potter and um, just skip forward on the podcast if you don't want to hear the end of either Harry Potter or the Chronicles of Narnia um, and the end of, of the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle. Um, J.K. Rowling explores the issue of, of death with, with Harry and Voldemort and all the stuff that goes on and indicates that there might be something beyond death. There's, there's you know, there's this kind of very bright place and there's people that have died and that kind of stuff. But the story can't end there. She has to bring Harry back to, to this world because it wouldn't be a happy ending if Harry died because, sorry, now I really have ruined it. But but in the last battle, actually, Lewis can take those children through a railway accident and say that actually for us, this is the end of the stories, but for them, it's just the beginning of the best story, which no one on earth has read and so on. And it's beautiful because he's actually saying, no, no, like you can genuinely end with death because you know that, that the best is yet to come. This isn't the end. This is just the beginning of the best story. And and that just it's not just oh it's nice to know that you know they're into somewhere better. It's mm -hmm. no no this if we really started to get that into our minds that the best is yet to come, mm -hmm. that these are just the shadowlands. If we could live in that and reorientate our lives around that, it would transform us. Mm -hmm. And I'm preaching to myself because I know that that's something I have to do every day because that's not how I naturally look at the world because I'm surrounded by people who don't have that worldview. And I'm being preached to by, you know, films and TV and, and media that doesn't have that worldview. And so I need to allow the truth of it um, to saturate my thinking so that it starts to then change my decisions and the way I live. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, well, Michael offered a wonderful uh, segue in uh, to our topic and he's one, offered a wonderful segue out. So, you know, this is the end, in fact, and the, but the best is yet to come, we hope in future episodes. So I hope you have found this one helpful um, and uh, I hope you will continue to like, subscribe, share, support, all of those podcasty things. And honestly, if you haven't left us a review on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever your podcatcher is, please go and do that. It does really help um, spread the word and get the message out if you're finding these helpful. So um, as always, um, we hope you'll keep listening and hope you'll keep um, sharing this with those you think will find it helpful too. I've been Aaron Edwards and I've been joined by Andy Bannister and Michael Otts and we will see you again soon. Farewell. Mm -hmm.